This is InfoTrack, the weekly show with information you should know. Here's what's happening on this week's show. If you always thought most big city murders are random, a recent study may surprise you. Turns out most victims know their attackers. The stray bullet killing, while tragic and indeed much more random, are a very small portion of all of our shootings. Most of our shootings, in fact, happen between people who know each other or people who have some sort of dispute. Then, a neuroscientist explains one secret of controlling addictions and a lot more about how our brains work. If you're an addict trying to stay clean, one of the best things that you can do is reduce your stress. Spend time with your dog, meditate, pray, exercise. Those two stories and much more are heading your way on this week's edition of InfoTrack. Stay with us. Our show begins right after this. InfoTrack, the weekly show with information you should know. Here's your host, Chris Whitting. Murders seem to happen randomly in big cities, but a recent study reveals surprising results. With more on the story, here's InfoTrack's Taryn McCall. Taryn? Thanks, Chris. Are urban neighborhoods as dangerous as they may seem? Unless you're part of a violent social network, probably not. Dr. Andrew Papachristos is the Robert Wood Johnson Health and Society Scholar at Harvard University and an assistant professor of sociology at the University of Massachusetts. He recently published a study showing the connections between homicide victims and perpetrators are not so random, and he joins us now on InfoTrack. Welcome, Dr. Papachristos. Hi, thanks for having me. Local news reports in urban areas play up what seem to be a lot of random violence, and the predictable result is fear. People don't want to go into unfamiliar neighborhoods or walk their own streets at night. Tell us what your study found to dispel that meme. The main finding of this study is that the vast majority of shootings in our cities are anything but random. The ones that make the news are, of course, the sort of stray bullet killing the child walking to school, but those, while tragic and indeed much more random, are a very small portion of all of our shootings. Most of our shootings, in fact, happen between people who know each other, people who hang out together, or people who have some sort of dispute. So you applied a social network template like Facebook to show links between offenders and victims. Correct. Social network analysis is sort of a real growing science. It's been growing over the last 20 years, but it's been around for about 50. And what it does is it analyzes the linkages between people and how that affects their health, social, and other types of behaviors. The study actually shows that even the so-called dangerous neighborhoods are not as dangerous to a person who's not part of that criminal network you identified. But what happens to the odds for a person who's had a brush with the law? What ends up happening is that even really in bad neighborhoods, neighborhoods where the rates of violence are higher than the average or considerably higher than an average, it's still usually in the communities I've studied somewhere between 3 and 5% of the population that are really at risk. Now, if you're around those areas or around those networks, your risk is obviously higher. And one of the things, again, especially in cities like Chicago and Boston that I've been studying, that happens is getting into this network, a lot of it has to do with your criminal activity. So the vast majority of victims and offenders in street shootings tend to be people who have a criminal record. 
In a way, the conclusion you draw is disturbing. Those already caught up in those social webs can't really escape unless they make a clean break from their social contacts. Moving to a quote-unquote better neighborhood isn't a remedy, is it? It sure can be. I think how you situate yourself in social networks changes over time. And I think there are things that take you out of certain social networks, getting married, having a job, going to school. Those are the things that are, of course, some of the most challenging things in these neighborhoods, particularly jobs and school, educational opportunities. But if you think about your own life and where you meet your friends and your partners and where you get jobs, it tends to be through those types of outlets which are missing in a lot of these neighborhoods. So while moving neighborhoods might not be an option, clearly changing the infrastructure within neighborhoods and services within neighborhoods can actually transform individual social networks. And in some instances, creating one particular network tie might very well be the difference between life or death. What about family members? That's a thought that disturbed me because while you can maybe change your friends, it's harder to leave your family and particularly children are at risk if their parents might be more at risk for violence according to their social networks. I think that's right. I think there's a lot of overlap when you consider how, and again in my study, mainly young men, but how these young men live their lives are usually around family members, they live with family members, and it can sort of increase the risk of everyone involved in their family. I do also think in many cases when you the guys I hang out with, the gang members, a lot of them are hanging around extended family as well. So there's a lot of overlap. Networks aren't clean. They're messy. It's like throwing a plate of spaghetti on the floor. They're all intertangled. And sometimes it's family and sometimes it's just your buddy. But all these things sort of interweave and overlap. The obvious application of this study is to help law enforcement agencies get a grip on crime or people that are at risk for violent crime in these neighborhoods. How are they working with your study? Well, right now I'm working with the National Network of Safe Communities on several initiatives in Chicago, Cincinnati, and a few other cities as well that try and identify who potential victims are and direct services there before they get shot. That the majority of these young men have been arrested makes it a little bit easier to identify them. If you could predict who would kill someone ahead of time, we would be like that movie Minority Report with Tom Cruise. But this is quite a different implication, which is you want to find out the victim ahead of time or whose odds are considerably higher. So just identifying the right people, the people who are most at risk in the network is what's happening right now from the victimization side. From the offending side, it's also a similar thing, trying to find out who is it that's in an active part of the network where shootings are going on. And that's where then the intervention comes. So rather than directing your efforts towards every single gang in the neighborhood, for example, you can sort of direct your efforts towards a particular group that's involved in shootings right now. And given limited resources, both for law enforcement and service providers, this is a much more efficient approach to those types of interventions. Do you have any metrics back or results from the application of this study in those cities? We just finished the first year, and so I'm hesitant to say anything just yet because we're still compiling the data. I think we know it's not going to be any worse than something that happened before, but the interventions that have been done before the application of network analysis showed extreme promise. I know there were some earlier studies done in Cincinnati that I was not involved with that showed that it had great effects on dismantling particular groups and lulling the violence associated with those groups. But the Chicago study is a bit too early to say. But back of the envelope, things look very promising. I anticipate we'll probably have some results we'll share in the next year. Can parental involvement do something to mitigate crime, particularly against their children? 
Yeah, I think that's one of those old adages that I think really is true, and it's cliche because it is truth to it. I mean, knowing who your kids' friends are is about knowing your social networks, <laughs> and not just knowing who your kids' friends are, but knowing your kids' friends' parents. And this is one of the early studies of networks in schools actually saw that when parents knew each other, they were much able to better, more efficiently monitor their kids. So if I said I'm going to Tommy's house, I don't know where Tommy's house is or who Tommy's parents are, that can have a fundamental difference, especially if Tommy's parents are drug dealers. So there's definitely something there, although that's not something that I've been able to look at just yet. We're talking with Dr. Andrew Papakristos, who completed a study on social networks and violence. Where can listeners go to read more about the study? My website, which is papakristos.org. It has links to all the published papers there. And Papakristos is spelled P-A-P-A-C-H-R-I-S-T-O-S. Yes, it is. We thank you so much for being with us today on InfoTrack. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you. And I'm Taryn McCall for InfoTrack. Next, certain behaviors that give us a buzz can be addicting. We'll tell you why and how to beat them, coming up. Don't go away. InfoTrack will be back right after this. 